Greetings, bibliophiles, to five author questions or 5A Cube presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library, the podcast that attempts to delve into the minds of writers using only five questions. Hello, my name is Kevin King. I am the head of community engagement. And I'm Sandra Farrick, head of youth services here at the Kalamazoo Public Library. So uh, we're going to be talking nature stuff today, which is really exciting because it's spring in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm curious, Sandra, uh-huh. what what is your favorite animal? So I love all of them, but my favorite right now are bunnies because <gasps> tiny bunnies made a nest or a den. I don't even know what it's called in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And there are like six little teeny tiny baby bunnies that just hopped out the other day for the first time. I have never seen so many bunnies in <laughs> Kalamazoo, honestly, in Kalamazoo than I have since I've lived here. It's pretty cool. Um, mine are otters. I love otters, mm-hmm. river sea, doesn't matter, because St. Kevin is the patron saint of otters. So it was preordained? It was preordained, and I'm not even Catholic. It's preordained. <laughs> All right. So if you are a fan of 5AQ, and why would you not be? You can follow us on Instagram at five author questions. If you've got a question, you can email us at podcasts at kpl.gov. And as always, like, share, and subscribe to 5AQ, or we may send the library police at you. Yep. Yep. Okie dokie. <laughs> so Michelle Nyhouse is the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction, she is a project editor at The Atlantic and a longtime contributing editor of High Country News. Her reporting has appeared in National Geographic, The New York Times Magazine, and elsewhere, and she lives in White Salmon, Washington. To learn more about Michelle, you can go right to her website, michellenighhouse.com. So the description I want to read to you, Beloved Beast, it, I'm sorry, Beloved Beast describes the vital role of scientists and activists such as Aldo Leopold and Rachel Carson. And it reveals the origins of organizations like the Audubon Society and the World Wildlife Fund, explores current efforts to protect species such as the whooping crane and the black rhinoceros, and confronts the darker side of conservation long shadowed by racism and colonialism. Now as the destruction of other species continues and the effects of climate change escalate, conservation is becoming a movement for the protection of all species, including our own. Welcome to 5AQ, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, show's called Five Questions, Five Author Questions. So you have five questions coming up, but we reserve the right to ask follow-ups that don't count towards five. It's our show. So. (laughs) I'm ready. All right. (laughs) Where and when was your passion for nature ignited? Well, I've I've loved the outdoors and um, I've really enjoyed animals since I was a little kid. I, I was obsessed with frogs growing up for some reason I, that I still can't explain to you. I still really like frogs. <laughs> and, um, but my I mean, my passion for environmental and conservation issues really wasn't ignited until I was in college or just out of college. And I was working as a field tech on wildlife biology research projects around the Southwest. And that took me to some really amazing places and got me up close with some amazing creatures, including maybe most memorably uh, desert tortoises, which I got to follow around uh, the desert of Southwestern Utah for several seasons. That's kind of like 
being a band, a fan of a band and following the band around, mm-hmm. but you're following around a desert tortoise. Just much slower. Much slower. <laughs> but like for many, many seasons. So this was or, ongoing. Yes. How many seasons? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, I think three seasons. Not not all together. Wow. Were they tagged and you were following the same ones or? Yes, okay. they were. But uh, there were enough of them that you would occasionally bump into them in the desert uh, just going about their business. Wow. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, it was a great job. It was surrounded by a lot of controversy over threatened and endangered species, uh-huh. which is really what I think long ago sparked my interest in conservation history, which I wrote about in in Beloved Beasts. I, I wanted to try to figure out how people had answered some of these big questions over time about how we protect other species or who should be protecting them and all the all those big questions that I heard people fighting about in coffee shops and town halls. So you're a scientist first and a journalist writer second? Kind of. I have always loved writing, but I majored in biology in college. And um, I I think even though I was I was very interested in biology, there was a part of me that that thought maybe I can find a way to combine these things. So it was a they they were they were combined in my mind at least from very early on. Cool. Thank you. All right, question two. What fictional character have you always wanted to meet in real life and why? (laughs) Well, anyone who knows me pretty well will tell you that I have always wanted to be Dr. Watson to Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I was introduced to the Sherlock Holmes stories when I was a little kid by a family friend who was a one of the early members of the Baker Street Irregulars mm-hmm. fan club. And uh, so I've always loved the stories. I've been a super fan of many of the adaptations. And uh, anytime there's a case that needs some help, I'm available. <laughs> nice. <laughs> to be a super fan of Sherlock Holmes is like, that's kind of, or I mean, super fan of Dr. Watson is, is interesting because usually people would probably be Sherlock Holmes. Well, Dr. Watson is the super fan of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, so, you know. Nice. That's true. <laughs> wow. Now, not, sorry, I paused because I started thinking about that. You're right. Yeah. He was the original. He was. The rest of us are just pretenders. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 we had an earlier guest also uh, actually say Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll connect you two and you guys. Can oh, good. Well, solve yeah, mysteries excellent. together. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, question three. You and your family lived off the grid in rural Colorado for 15 years. What did you learn then that has helped during the pandemic? Hmm, good question. Thank you. <laughs> I well, we I don't this has less to do with living off the grid per se than with the way we lived, but uh my family and I we were a small family of 3 and we have always lived in very small houses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when so we uh, I think gained those skills first when we were living off the grid and we would, we just had uh, basically uh, one large room and then two tiny bedrooms. And we, we learned to coexist in that space. And now we live on the grid, but in an equally small house and, and we learned to get along pretty well. <laughs> and so the, the isolation of the pandemic hasn't been as hard on us as it, as it might've been because we were already used to, uh, ways of ways of being in the same space, but also creating our own space. That's a really important skill that I think has been lost over time. And I think I feel like learning it now again has been really a good lesson for some people. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, just yeah, the, yeah. I just think the yeah. idea of uh, not being able to exist in a space with other people without <laughs> having to be constantly interacting or. I had five people in a tiny two bedroom in New York, which was barely 500 or 550 square feet. So you know it too then. Yeah. And then I had three people in a 400 square foot, or I think it was like 375. Oh yeah. Yeah. Whenever I talk about how I live in a quote unquote small house, New Yorkers are always like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) whatever, (laughs) whatever. That is not small. (laughs) Been there, done that. I remember last summer I was so excited because I I needed some time by myself during the pandemic and I found an Airbnb. It said off the grid (laughs) cabin and I was super excited, but it was like, I mean, they advertised it as off the grid, but it had like, it had still had stuff that I <laughs> it was gritted. <laughs> it was totally gritted. It was yeah. The grittiest of the well, grids. we were, we lived very, I mean, we were off the grid and mm-hmm. that we were, there was no grid we were connected to, but uh, yeah. our power came from solar panels and, mm-hmm. and uh, we had all the mod cons except we couldn't have things with the heating elements. So okay. uh, waffle iron, hair dryer clothes dryer those things were we couldn't have but Mm. everything else we had so it wasn't exactly we weren't suffering it wasn't like a little house on the prairie (laughs) not at all people sometimes visualize visualize it that way but it was not it was not hard it was mostly extremely pleasant i can't i mean i mean i can totally imagine that yeah if you'd see sandra's face right now when i said i can imagine that she gave me the look like whatever dude (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was trying to think of me living during the yeah. times of Little House on the Prairie, and I'm like, I'm too high maintenance for that, mm-hmm. those shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't do that. Yeah. We had a washing machine. We had a, we, you know, we had a TV, uh, internet. We were fine. Oh, yeah. We had yeah. It was when we had a string of cloudy days, sometimes the battery would get a bit low, and we then it would be true Little House on the Prairie situation. <laughs> but we, we always knew it wasn't going to last long because it was Colorado, so the sun always yeah. came back. Yeah. You live in the opposite where you live. You couldn't do that in Michigan. You would never have power. <laughs> right. No, that would be tough. Yeah. Okay. Question four. If you could pick a theme song for your life, what would you choose? Oh, my goodness. I can't pick just one theme song, but Fine. I can tell you the, tell us the all song. Of them. All of them. <laughs> I can tell you, yeah, there's so many chapters and stages and moods, but I can tell you the song that gets me through the bleakest times. Okay. And that is um, This Year by the Mountain Goats. <gasps> uh, oh my gosh, you know a Mountain song? Goat fan. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So I just feel like, I don't know, I can't, you know, when things are, seem really dark, I can't listen to happy music, but yeah. there's something about the mood of that song where it's dark, but also joyful yeah. that really mm-hmm. pulls me out of a funk well that's that's a song that's gone through my head a lot in the past year myself yeah so it totally, is it's the theme song for yeah, this year for the it, world i it, think it really yeah. is and and mm-hmm. that album i mean if you've read anything about that the creation of that album it was you know the time that he was living through that he was writing about is is i mean kind of similar in some ways mm-hmm. the isolation and feeling alone so yeah great yeah. choice I do not know this song, so I'm going to look it up after we're done. You're going to have to play it when we're done. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, it's a wonderful song. Okay. Great for road trips. Yes, it is. So, question number five, the final Mm -hmm. question. When people ask what they can do to help nature, what do you most often suggest? Or conservation, help with conservation efforts. Yeah, a couple of things. I think the first thing is a shift in perspective, in that I I think that 
the conservation movement as speaking very generally has spent too much time talking about nature as something out there. Mm -hmm. And obviously there is a huge need for us to protect big landscapes, big relatively undisturbed landscapes because we've done so much damage to other habitats. But there's also a need, I think, for us to recognize that we live within ecosystems, no matter where we live. And so my first suggestion is for people to think about the ecosystem that they live in, learn something about it. Even if you live in a very urban area, you still live in an ecosystem. It just happens to be more dominated by humans than than other kinds of ecosystems. So what species do you share the ecosystem with? And what kinds of habitats, what kinds of habitats do humans provide to other species? And who is taking care of that ecosystem? Uh, who's who's doing the right thing by it and how can you help them? And then the second thing I would suggest is uh, obviously many of the world's most vulnerable species live in places where habitats and people are also very vulnerable uh, for various reasons. And and one of the most ethical and effective ways to advance conservation in those places is to guarantee indigenous land rights. And that's mm. that's an issue that I think is not has not yet been adopted by conservation groups as the central strategy, mm. but it should be um, it, because where it affects um, by some estimates, half the world's land area. And I think it has affirming indigenous land rights has huge potential to, to advance conservation in a really meaningful way that also benefits humans. So there are groups like the Indigenous um, Women's Forum and the Rights and Resources Initiative that are doing really good work uh, but aren't as connected with the conservation movement as they could be and should be. So I hope that will change in the future. And I really recommend that anyone interested in conservation um, look into land rights and land tenure as a as a strategy. I, I kind of have a follow-up there. Um, <laughs> I've just read a really great book on um, Indigenous people in Michigan, and uh, it was a fic- it's a fiction book. And uh, so you it's kind of all related and coming to me now, the, the question would be like, it feels like that there's a huge part of the social justice efforts that you talk about in your book that are related to the indigenous um, land rights. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. I think that for a long time conservation, the conservation movement has seen itself as separate from social justice movements. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because conservationists have often seen themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, have often seen themselves as protecting nature from humans. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, humans can be incredibly destructive. It's often necessary to protect nature from humans. Mm-hmm. But, but if we are to achieve conservation on a meaningful scale, humans also have to play a constructive role in conservation. And, we know from experience and research that not only indigenous people, but people of all kinds, when given support and, and opportunity, can can manage the resources, whether it be species or habitats, that they depend on. Uh, they can manage them long-term and very successfully in a very sustainable way. And so indigenous land rights gives 
rural communities and indigenous indigenous communities the kind of stability and ability to plan long term. And that, of course, makes it much easier for them to either revive these existing management strategies or adapt new ones that really allow people to coexist with other species, which is, you know, we can't protect the species and habitats we need to protect with parks and reserves alone. Parks and reserves are great, but that can't be our only strategy. Um, we have to learn to coexist. And I think, as I said, I think indigenous land rights are one of the most ethical and, and effective ways to, to accomplish that in the short term. Wow. Thank you so much. That's really important. And I'm glad that we got that out in our conversation today. Thank you. Good follow-up question. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So what are you working on now or what do you have coming up next? Well, Beloved Beast just came out. So I have been talking about it and also writing um, things that are related to conservation history. I just finished a piece about for the Atlantic about John Muir and the Sierra Club's reckoning with his commissions and omissions mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and how, how his, the things he said and, and didn't say affect conservation, the conservation movement today affect how conservationists see nature today. And, and, and broadly it, it's similar to what I was just talking about that, mm -hmm. that John Muir despite having accomplished many good things um, and, and having founded the Sierra Club, which has, of course, done great work for many, many years, also didn't have a, he really didn't see the places he loved as being deeply inhabited by humans, even though they were. And so that, call it a failure of imagination, I think it it has affected the viewpoint of the conservation movement over time and and led led people to think that that the places they love and want to protect don't have a human history and almost in every almost every case they do have a human history and that history and as well as the as well as of course the present day inhabitants need to be protected too thank you for sharing that as well i, I was wondering the, the if we were going to talk or touch on john muir's legacy at all so i'm glad that mm -hmm. we, i'm glad that it came up look forward to that piece in the atlantic coming up yeah so we've come to the end of the show. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Michelle. Uh, we really appreciate um, your work and the book. It's, it's an amazing book. And uh, anybody interested in conservation and in the movement um, and the people behind it and how it fits in the history of human history and today's world, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a great book. So thanks thank for joining us. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Five Author Questions, presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library. Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. And finally, we leave you with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. It is not enough to be busy. So are the ants. The question is, why are, what are we busy about?